Hi friends, my name is Kevin. Welcome to the Via Media Podcast. Attachment science is the study of how we connect with others. Attachment theory suggests that the quality and type of this connection is a primary driver of our behavior and even influences our sense of resiliency, our belief in hope, and even our moral philosophies. Attachment science is an incredibly revolutionary way to understand ourselves and viewing humanity through this lens can transform how we relate, our sense of compassion towards others, our understanding of ourselves, and perhaps most importantly, give us the perspectives and tools for how to move forward in all our relationships in a more healthy and meaningful way. Crispin Mayfield is a licensed therapist residing in Portland, Oregon. His book, Attached to God, A Practical Guide to Deeper Spiritual Experience, is a wonderful introduction to attachment theory, but it is also an exploration of the spiritual and religious traditions of Christianity through the lens of attachment theory. His insights interrogate many of the theological and ethical teachings that have been prominent in some circles of Christianity, and he shows how they are received by the various attachment strategies that people use. He then uses this understanding to illuminate a pathway towards healing, healthier relationships, and the experience of true belonging. Via Media's pursuit of curiosity and hope is profoundly enhanced by our understanding of attachment science, and we are tremendously grateful to Crispin for sharing this time with us. Thanks to all of you, the Via Media community, for participating in this journey. Here is my conversation with Crispin Mayfield. Well, good evening, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us for another conversation with Via Media. First one to say thank you to our partner, Spark Church. And I know that there's a watch party going on over there at Spark, so shout out to all of you. If you are watching live, we do have a Slido. You can ask and upvote questions at the event number that is listed at the bottom of your screen. So please participate, share some comments, etc. And we would love to have you participate with us. Friends, my guest is Crispin Mayfield, a therapist out of Portland, Oregon, and somebody with whom I am incredibly jealous because he can just get in his car and go down to Powell's bookstore whenever he wants to, and I have to get on a plane to do so. So I'm just extremely jealous about that. I'm just <laughs> going to confess that. The author of Attached to God, a uh, what's the subtitle? A Practical Guide to Deeper Spiritual Experience, a phenomenal read and book and this is going to be the topic of our conversation crispin thank you so much for joining us so glad to thank have you, you here yeah i'm so excited i always love talking about attachment and just super honored that you thought to invite me well so. it's it's an absolute thrill okay so what i'd like to start with actually let's do this we're going to start with attachment theory 101 and then right. i'd like to move to church ministry theology in light of attachment theory. And then I, at the very end, I'd like to just take a few moments if you could provide maybe some collective group therapy for all of us who have been through those first two. So that's a little bit of what the pathway of where we'd like to go. Um, that's That probably grates against your sensibilities as a therapist, but nonetheless, that's a little bit of where- I mean, like we need it we, after we, the last few years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So let's just start with a very basic and simple question. What is attachment theory and why is it so important to our understanding of ourselves? And then we'll get to understanding of our spirituality. Yeah. So what we found in attachment science, which has been around for about 75 years, is that our greatest drive is to connect with others, to uh, specifically someone who is special to us. And so, you know, for a long time in psychology, we thought uh, sex drove people, we thought uh, violence, we thought food. Um, but it turns out that we really, as humans, are created to connect and to to pursue that connection with others. And so the 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 whole science and the whole field of attachment science is asking, what are the ways that we do that? Because that can look so many different ways. And so we have this core drive to connect with others. And then we're studying, what does this look like uh, between kids and their moms? What does it look like between romantic partners? What does it look like 
between a person and God? What does it look like with your coworkers? And you have specific ways that you try to get connection that are different than others and also probably the same as others in some ways as well. Yeah. Okay. So let you talk about three main attachment styles and I have two kind of main questions around this. Number one, is it really a style? The word style was difficult and challenging for me because what I understand about attachment is it's not necessarily something that is innate to our temperament or personality as if it's a preference. Mm -hmm. It's actually something that feels much more conditioned. It's something that develops mm -hmm. within us as a result of our environment, etc. So, um, so number one, um, can we call it a style? Why is it called a style? Is there another term or can we tease out the connotation of that word? And then the second question that I, w which is kind of connected with how does it develop? And the second question is, is an attachment style or a preference something that we can actually choose? Or is it something that's chosen for us? It's something that is done to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the I really appreciate you asking that question about style because it is a it's a weird term um, and it really I think gets confused with personality styles. Um, a lot of times people approach it that way, but I like to use the word strategy. So these are the strategies mm -hmm. that you learned to connect, and so. If you had a parent that um, that would only pay attention to you when you when you got really big and loud and your emotions were loud and um, then that's your tends to be your attachment style is to make a big deal out of things because that's the way that you learn to connect. If you had parents that um, actually were really overwhelmed by that and they needed you to stay calm and to shove your negative emotions down so that they would connect with you, then you learn to do that. So there are these different ways that we learn to connect, usually with parents. Um, and so it impacts how we connect with others, but also connects how we relate to our emotions. Mm. And so um, I kind of already hit on this, but uh, it really is, you know, usually formed in childhood, usually formed within the first 18 months of life. So this is before we're necessarily even talking as babies. We learn because we are, you know, brilliant and magnificent. We learn what are the things that get me connection with my parents and what are the things that drive them away. And so um, we actually really take that on in a very, uh, very deep body way, right? Again, this is pre-verbal, um, but that doesn't mean that it can't change. Um, and in fact, there are, uh, a lot of times during adolescence, it can change. And then we can also heal and we can find better ways to relate. But um, typically across the board, it's those uh, early childhood years that teach us this is how you bring people close, which we want to do. And then this is how you drive people away, which we don't want to do. And mm -hmm. so um, it's really connected in a lot of ways to our fight or flight system, our sense of survival, because your parents are the ones that take care of you, right? So there's this part of you that's like, if I lose connection with my parent, I'm all alone in the world and I'm probably gonna die. So from a from an evolutionary standpoint, they said, you know, this makes sense that we're trying to get connection because we're trying to get the care that we need. Mm -hmm. And so we become very attuned to what is it that helps bring that connection and closeness and comfort and what is it that drives them away? Yeah. I think that's really incredibly helpful because for, I mean, we are now applying attachment theory to all sorts of levels of therapy, mm -hmm. to parent-child relationships and even to marriages, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And some of these styles that manifest themselves, like shut down and anxious attachment, um, insecure attachment styles are like, we can perceive them as like, you are trying to put a wedge between us. You're trying to actually push mm -hmm. me away. But that's actually their particular way. And I love the word strategy. That's their particular strategy that they've learned to stay close, to explain how a behavior that shuts down, that is anxious, that is driving a wedge, that is trying to, you know, in adoption scenarios, you sometimes split parents in two. There's all these different ways where this, again, style manifests itself. Explain how that is an expression of wanting to actually be connected and attached to another person. Yeah, this is where it intersects a lot with trauma-informed care. If 
if some of you are familiar with that, which is where we stop asking like what's wrong with you and instead ask what happened to you. So there's this idea of when people have behaviors that seem uh, unhealthy or dysfunctional, we generally assume that there's a reason that, that they're doing that. There's a reason that is happening. And so we can take that same approach with attachment. Um, and so what we learn is I, I actually work with couples. That's my main thing. And so I'll have, um, you, you know, often it's a male part of a heterosexual couple, not always, but, uh, this is kind of the, you know, broad strokes piece. Um, where he's shutting down his emotions and partner is like, I want to know what you're feeling. But what he learned early on growing up is, you know, boys don't cry, got that from parents, got that from all of culture. And so it means if I show you my emotions, that, that means there's something wrong with me and then you're going to go away, right? You're going to see that there's really like I'm, I'm broken, whatever it is and you're gonna go away. And so in order to keep you close, I'm gonna shove my emotions down and pretend like I'm okay because I don't wanna scare you away. And you know, again, I'm sitting with partners and I know that the other partner's like, no, I actually wanna know what you're feeling. I wanna know what's going on inside. But for that person, because they've their brain has been formed their whole life to say, no, if, if you don't shut down your emotions, other people are going to leave. They're going to go away. It takes, it takes a lot of healing to get to this place where you can kind of rewire your attachment system to say, okay, like I, I'll, sh you know, I'll share with you and trust that you're not going to run away. Yeah. Then that requires a good therapist to walk this <laughs> through, right? Yes. Keep, keep you, keep you in business. We have <laughs> um, some amazing um, therapists in our congregation here. So I, I know that they've, uh, they're, they're incredibly well-versed and skilled in, in these kinds of um, techniques. Um, I wanted to ask then, because teasing out how attachment actually works, you mentioned things like presence, attunement, material support, etc. Um, mm -hmm. Can we tease out much more practically and explicitly? So because you mentioned that like 18 months old, you're starting to develop mm -hmm. these things. So pre-verbal. But then I can imagine for, let's say, the example that you just mentioned, the uh, gentleman who is carrying those behaviors into an adult you know, relationship, those lessons that you learned when you're 18 are also then reinforced along the way. Mm -hmm, but the mm -hmm. but the behaviors that the primary caretaker did during the first 18 months might have shifted or changed along the way as the child becomes verbal, becomes a teenager, becomes much more independent, etc. Um, the reason why I want to tease this out, because I think this is going to be really helpful for us when we get to segment number two, which is our spirituality, but obviously it's helpful for all of our relationships. So can you talk a little bit more about presence and attunement, material support? Like what is the actual mechanism by which healthy, strong attachment happens in these various stages of life? Mm, yeah. So Sue Johnson, who um, created a whole therapy model out of attachment for couples, um, she looks at three things. One, she she um, asks, are you available? So when I call out to you, are you available? And we'll talk in a minute about how as a parent, you do not have to be available 100% of the time. Um, but there is this sense of like, if I if I'm if I'm a baby and I call out to you, are you there or are you gone? Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, we even experience this in adult relationships, right? Like I had a rough day and I'm approaching you and like, are you are you available to me or are you shut down and you're going to pull away from me? And so availability is one responsiveness is the other. So if I if I'm upset, if I'm in distress, are you going to respond to me? with comfort and with empathy. Um, and again, that doesn't have to be all the time, but it has to be enough of the time that I learn that if I'm upset, you're going to come comfort me. You're going to come with me, come to me. You're going to be responsive. And then the third is engaged and engaged means that you are engaged with me. I don't always have to be the one to pursue you. Um, you know, I, in like an adult friendship, like I don't have to be the one to always text. Um, but you can think about what that would look like in childhood, right? We want uh, a parent who 
come to us sometimes and asks, how's your day? Those sorts of things. And so the, that's the bedrock. Um, what we find is uh, they, they recently finished, I think, a 40, 45 year old study about attachment. And what they found was that uh, mothers that had the support that they needed were able to be present and attuned to their kids mm -hmm. and mothers who weren't, uh, you know, when they found there's this insecure attachment, uh, generally the research showed that this was moms that were experiencing s severe poverty. Mm -hmm. uh, they were mm -hmm. experiencing um, like domestic violence. They were experiencing things that of course, like they're in their own stress, fight or flight, place and as much as they really want to be a good mom they're not able to show up for their kid in that way and so those are some of the things we look at but um there's also some research that shows we go to elementary school and uh, our peer relationships form our attachment style mm -hmm. um and it you know can go forward from there yeah that's really helpful to know peer, peer relationships i mean all of our relationships are doing business in how we navigate the world. So we have primary mm -hmm. care uh, uh, caretakers, then we have friendships and relationships and then spouses and marriages and, and these different types of things. And they're all operating on our attachment style. And I'm, I, I need to use the word attachment strategy from now on, because I think that's a really wonderfully much more helpful term. Mm -hmm. um, talk then about the still face experiment what that is and how that is relevant to what you just said, because that mm. was really, it was so painful to watch, but so uh -huh. incredibly relevant because it is like, that is what people f experience frequently. Mm -hmm. And then, so what is the still faced experiment? And what does that tell us about this um, thing of us needing to yeah. attach and connect? Yeah, it's it's funny. It's a really basic uh, experiment. Basically, what they did was they had a mom and an infant and they're playing and they're interacting. And then they asked the mom to just go still face, just, you know, blank face, not respond. And uh, we see the infant try to re-engage mom, try to get that connection. She points at things around the room. She coos. She does all the things that babies do that are cute to try to get that response. And you know, the, the experiment, the people that were facilitating the experiment had told mom, just, you know, keep a straight face, keep, keep just this still face. And the toddler, uh, I mean, infant, right? 18 months old or younger, just gets more and more upset and just like totally loses control, totally loses it. And what we know is that in moments like that, that there's this feeling of, like my survival is is under attack. Um, mammals have something called primal panic, where when it feels like we're disconnected from that really important person, there's this fight or flight response thing that that comes up, right? This intense anxiety that comes up, and so we see this in this in this infant. But what we know is that um, infants, like you know, throw themselves on the floor and they cry and they scream and they throw tantrums. Um, and as adults, when we feel that loss of relationship, we have that same thing just internally. Often, mm -hmm. if mm -hmm. we feel like I can't really trust this person that I care so much about, I I can't really trust that they're going to stick around. I can't trust that they're coming back. Then we get really upset, and it really points to again this this deep need that we have for connection and how that connection just drives so much of what we do. Mm. And um, a lot of the things that we do that are really unhealthy or people might say sinful, um, you know, I like to think back at, at a lot of those things are driven by this need for connection that goes unmet. Mm. And so, and it makes sense, right? That, that God is relational and God has created us for a relationship. And so we see that in the still face and, um, yeah. And I, I just wanted to add that if you want to go look that up online, um, make sure to look up Sue Johnson as well, because mm. they did a video, uh, her and that, ex, uh, that researcher did a video together and they looked at what it looks like as a baby and a mom. And then they looked at a couple mm. and held them side by side and saw that like that, you know, the pattern is the same. Well, I can imagine like if you're having a, like if we were having a conversation now and you just didn't respond whatsoever. Mm -hmm. This would be an incredibly mm -hmm. um, horrible, 
online live event, right? That's right. <laughs> um, and the fact that, you know, all, all these things are, are really critical. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I, I thought was really important to say out loud that you mentioned in your book is the idea of attachment and the idea of wanting to be a good parent is um, can produce some can produce some uh, additional anxiety. Oh my goodness, mm-hmm. I, I can't believe the number of times that I've looked at my phone. I can't believe the number of times I've ignored mm-hmm. my child. Um, and you mentioned the good enough principle in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we're kind of setting some groundwork here. Um, I'm kind of curious about the good enough principle. So number one, what is the good enough principle when it comes to parenting? Mm-hmm. But the, there's this mm-hmm. follow-up question that I have. Because in your book, you talk about these dysfunctional, or should I say the much more um, difficult or challenging attachment strategies, right? Like mm-hmm. anxious and insecure mm-hmm. and shut down. But you didn't necessarily explicate, although you shared a lot, but you didn't really explicate healthy attachment, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So there's there's a whole bunch of threads I'm trying to weave together. Number one, mm-hmm. parents don't always have to be 100% all the time. Mm-hmm. Number two, a secure attachment doesn't necessarily mean 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. And then I'm so sorry, I'm, I'm multi-layering this question. But then number three, you just sent out a newsletter, newsletter, which for those watching, if you're not on Crispin's newsletter, make sure you, you get on it, where you discuss how important the rupture and repair cycle is actually critical to a healthy attachment. In other words, the fact that parents do fail or the fact that spouses can fail or the, fa- the fact mm-hmm. that relationships can fail at times can actually be or must actually be part of the process of creating a secure attachment. So I asked you 10 questions in that entire thing, but I felt like all of that was really interwoven. So um, yeah. can you share a little bit more and explicate some of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, that was something that I really appreciated um, about the research is that um, when I when I wrote the book, um, I, you know, I was writing the manuscript a couple of years ago, they said, yeah, like something like 50 percent. Um, for, for a secure attachment, you just have to show up for your kids 50% of the time. And that doesn't mean 50% of all the time. That means like the times when they're in distress, you just have to get it right 50% of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, Ed Tronic, who did the still face experiment, has published a book since then with some additional research and found that uh, it's actually closer to 30%. So wow. uh, what he found is that... The bar's that low. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, but... It, you know, so it really is about um, being able to, to, you know, get it right some of the time. What's really important is, is asking, you know, do we, do we, can we repair from that rupture? That's the important thing because, um, you know, there's a huge difference between, you know, I have a, I have a seven-year-old and a 12-year-old and uh, we have ruptures all the time and they're like, dad, why aren't you listening to me? Um <laughs> And, you know, sometimes I'm like, I, I'm doing something here, <laughs> but there are times, enough times where I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, can you tell that to me again? But um, that's the difference between a parent that doesn't know how to repair that says, well, it's your fault for asking me when I was trying to do something or, you know, always turns it back on them. And so, um, yeah, you, you know, it's just a matter of repair. And so I think that is really encouraging for parents. Mm. Uh, the reason that I, I did not let, um, you know, I even did an assessment in the book and, you know, you could kind of figure out, all right, like which attachment strategies do you use? And what I failed, what I didn't let people do is uh, score themselves as secure mm. because right. we all tend towards one of these uh, strategies at one time or another. So even the, even if you have a generally secure attachment style, you usually choose one of these strategies during times of distress. And so I thought that was really mm. important. Um, and uh, I'm also thinking of um, my friend Jeffrey Ulrich, who wrote a book that I would highly recommend called The Six Needs of Every Child. Mm. Um, and he actually did some research 
uh, with the founders of attachment, kind of with that lineage of researchers. Um, but he always says that categories are for research. They're not for people. Mm. And I think that's a really helpful way to look at it is, you know, nobody is square in any category. Yeah. Uh, but understanding that even if I feel pretty secure a lot of the time, it's good to know where do I go when I'm in distress. That, um, that's you know. incredibly helpful. And again, one of the reasons why I had such a problem with the word style, um, mm -hmm. because if if we are deploying these and I, I presume that we're making, you know, we're making assessments and analyses like this particular person is responding to me in this particular way. Why am I not connecting here? Well, I can I can leverage that particular style at that particular moment or that particular strategy at that moment to try to find some some connection. And the fact that we, I mean, this makes so much sense that we all do this. Um, yeah. At particular times. And yeah, and you you do that in with different relationships in your life, and people will be in. They'll be like. I was in this marriage and I had this attachment style and then I got into this marriage and it was totally different hmm. because the dynamics of those intimate relationships can be so different. And so, um, yeah, we, you know, I think of them as strategies we have in our back pocket that we pull out again with that drive to connect. We, you know, if we know, like I can just get connection when I need it, that's great. But then those times where it's like, I'm really stressed and I don't know if I can get the connection I need or the closeness mm -hmm. I need. That's when we like, you know, reach in our back pocket and pull out some of those things. So so let me see if I can push you on the question of then what is a healthy attachment strategy given everything that we've just said, mm -hmm. given all of those particular dynamics? Because I because mm -hmm. I and the, the statement that you said categories are for research, not for people is a, is a brilliant statement because. I think when we hear insecure attachment, anxious attachment, um, mm -hmm. shutdown attachment, and then healthy attachment, like I want to be in the healthy category, right? This is where yeah. I want to be, or this is the aim that I'm shooting for. But it, mm -hmm. it is sounding like a much healthier way is that healthy isn't a category. Healthy is a different kind of all-encompassing approach to the world rather than a category that is diametrically opposed to all these other categories. So can I push you on the question, what then is healthy, given that we all have these distinctive varieties of ways that we navigate attachment and connection with others? Yeah. So healthy attachment, um, you know, we described what it looks like in, in childhood, um, which is, you know, just knowing that my parents are there for me, um, knowing that if I need them, they're there, which means I don't need to be worrying about uh, keeping their attention necessarily, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but then as adults, what that means is that I have this this blueprint, this baseline idea of the people in my life are going to stay close to me, even if things get rocky. Mm -hmm. And so that makes me much more able to uh, to tell what I need and say it directly and clearly. Um, because I, I trust that, you know, if I tell you what I need, you're going to do your best to show up for me. Um, whereas if I have a blueprint of like, well, when I ask for what I need, other people pull away or they shame me or whatever. Um, you know, that would be that more on the unhealthy side. So being able to express what it is you need, being able to notice your own emotions and feelings. That's one of those pieces mm -hmm. of secure attachment is saying, um, you know, even being able to say like, oh, I'm noticing myself going into this like shutdown mode uh, because I'm feeling really worried about the relationship. Right. Yeah. That's like someone that maybe has that shutdown style sort of like preference, but they have enough security to even notice what's going on inside of themselves and to even share it with a friend or a partner, that right. sort of thing. Right. But it really is this idea of uh I am okay and I'm inherently lovable, so I don't have to work to keep other people around. And also, um, generally, the world is trustworthy. So I, I can trust that um, if you go to the gym and you don't text me for an hour, um, that we're good and you're not mad at me. Mm. Um, you know, and you'll tell me if you're mad at me, mm. uh, that sort of thing. So that's yeah. sort of what secure attachment looks like. Um, you know, we, we think a lot about view of self and view of other view of self is I am lovable view of other, um, at least for those that have proven themselves trustworthy is, uh, I can trust you. 
Yeah, this is going to lead us into our next segment because um, the word trust and, and all of what you just said about the kind of trust that you have with another person is very much connected to the biblical conception of trust, of, un, of, of faith. And we translate that word faith to mean like this intellectual assent to something. But the, um, the underlying original language ideas and the kind of the original conception is trust and the, the knowledge that like the deep inner relational existential experiential knowledge that God will be there, that you mm-hmm. trust whatever is going to happen, you are okay and you're going to be connected. You, you write on page um, 150 um, and then 151. I, I may not read this entire quote, but it's, I mean, your entire book's pretty wonderful. I'll just read the entire book right now. Um, no, just page 150. True intimacy happens when we can share what's in the basement. And um, you talk a, a bit, little bit about the Psalms and the psalmist being able to hold emotions and faith and being able to express anger and closeness and sadness and cl- connection all, all at the same time. And it just strikes me, and I think many people that engage with this particular work, that the very thing that we recoil against, which is vulnerability and sharing, and not only vulnerability and sharing with another per- person, but w- with ourselves, just being honest with ourselves of what we need and what's really going on, is the very pathway towards healing and towards hope and towards restoration and and mm-hmm. and reconciliation. So we need a little bit more of that vulnerability um, I suppose. Mm. What is, are there, like, if, if you could share with us what is either a strategy or a, a philosophy or a way of thinking about getting to that point of vulnerability? I mean, many of us have talked, heard Brene Brown give us the vulnerability mm. speech for hours and hours. What is the thing that we do to become vulnerable to get to this particular point? Yeah. Um, I go like to therapy. The, I like the side. I like the side. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I think that um, you know I find that that finding safe people is really important, and so um, and also safe spiritual practices. Mm. And I think about the folks that where they are very unpracticed at vulnerability because they were given so many reasons to not be vulnerable, mm. and. Um, and it, it's funny because uh, in couples therapy, we talk about these folks and, and sometimes they'll give us this like gem of like something that's vo- really took so much for them to share. And as therapists, we're like, OK, like what else you got? Like, tell me more. Um, <laughs> but but really, like, you know, being able to move into that vulnerable space takes time. It takes intentionality and it takes it takes trust, like we talked about. And so finding uh, the people in your life and, and I would say relation like through prayer and saying, I'm not very good at this. This is really scary for me. I find that a lot of folks, um, you know, depending on kind of how you were socialized, but a lot of folks are like, I know that I'm supposed to get in touch with my emotions or get in touch with my body. And I don't even know how to do that. Mm-hmm. And so for some folks, it's even learning um, just how to start to get in touch with your body. And so many clients I work with, they're like, I don't know what that means. It feels like I'm doing it wrong. It's almost like um, right, if right. you grew up evangelical and you're like, all right, I'm having my alone time and I'm supposed to hear something from God, but I don't know how to do that. Um, <laughs> I feel like it's a similar thing. Like, all right, my body's supposed to be telling telling me something, but I don't know what it is. And so learning to make practices of just like listening to your body on this like very baby step scale of like, Oh, I'm hungry. Um, my shoulders are tight, those sorts of things. Right. Um, so for those of us, uh, myself included sometimes that have difficulty knowing what we're feeling and sharing it, those can be some of the steps forward is to, to do that. And then again, like finding, finding people that are trustworthy and saying like, Hey, I'm really, bad at sharing my emotions, but I wanted to tell you that I had a bad day today, yeah. you know, just taking those little risks. That's fantastic. And people, but also communities. So let's move to church and mm-hmm. Christianity and evangelicalism. I don't know if there's anybody else. I haven't heard of anybody that has written so articulately regarding attachment theory, attachment style and psychology and the theologies that come with a lot of church and specifically evangelical expressions of Christianity. 
Um, your interrogation of these statements was really <laughs> stunning to myself as well as many other people. So, for example, um, there's a John MacArthur quote that you have here, uh, page 25, lack of joy is a sin for the child of God. And then you ask, what does this mean for the countless Christians who struggle daily with depression? So I want to ask you, you didn't answer it in the book. So now I'm, answer, I'm asking you, what does this mean? As well as many, many other quotes that you have in your book regarding Christianity and some of the very shame-filled, detached, shut down. <laughs> I mean, like all of the stuff <laughs> right. that many are going through right now with evangelicalism, mm -hmm. with Christianity, mm -hmm. with the mm -hmm. cultural shifts that are going on are very much rooted in these teachings. Mm -hmm. So tell us what's going on here and what is, uh, what are we to make of it and where are we to go with all of this? Yeah. So there's, there is some research or an attachment to God uh, actual like psychological research um, about, you know, what's, what are people's attachment styles? What forms that generally what they've found so far is that your parents have a huge role in how you uh, attach to God and your attachment style. Um, as I was writing the book, I wanted to say that just can't be true. Like, I, I think it's true, but it feels like if you grew up in the church, if you grew up evangelical, you got these messages very early on from God, or not from God, from spiritual leaders about God <laughs> um, that I, I, I think form, you know, your attachment style. And um, I was really inspired for this book uh, by Doug Frank, who wrote a book called Gentler God. Um, hmm. And so actually I, I pulled this quote. He says, every theologian was once a child. The experiences of a little child are hidden away within the psyche of every scholar laboring at a desk to write the truth about God. The childhoods of young men who fashioned evangelical Christianity's God in mid-century America to a startling degree are littered with broken father-son relationships. So, because wow. <laughs> we just assume... What, what was the name of the is, author and book again? Uh, Doug Frank and... Um, his book is called Gentler God. Okay. He's uh, does some, he does some amazing work of integrating like evangelical history, like American history with uh, some psychological concepts and theology. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, as I, as I was looking at some of these, uh, these common teachings in the church that we just assume like, here's this guy, he read the Bible and then he told us what it said. Um, but as you dig into their histories, you learn that, oh, actually, a lot of these people have attachment trauma. I did not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I did not look at John MacArthur's um, history. Uh, but, you know, if we were to assume maybe that he has a shutdown attachment style that says, you know, negative emotions are are going to drive other people away. That makes so much sense to me. He's his age, um, race, gender. Like, I'm sure he got those messages. And so then you take on this Christianity that just affirms that and says, yep, if you are, if you're not having positive feelings, there's something wrong with you as a Christian. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, so it was really, I, I guess in some ways, like kind of devastating to see the ways that um, people's undealt with trauma uh, were, was impacting the theology that we looked at. Charles Spurgeon um, was someone that I talk about as well, who um, he, in a lot of his writing talked about, you know, I'm a worm, I'm, I'm a pile of poop, like just all these right. things. And, you know, some people look at that and you're like, oh, he's so spiritual. Um, but as I was reading it, I was like, these are the things that kids with a tra attachment trauma say. And, um, it turns out that he seemingly had some attachment trauma. He was separated from his family when he was young. Um, and so we know that, that's what humans do when they go through attachment trauma is they feel like there's something really broken at my core. And then he ended up being a theologian and integrated that feeling of like being rotten and disgusting into his theology. But seems likely to me that that's a lot out of his own psychology rather than the Bible. I feel like we need to spend a lot of time here. A couple things. Number one, when 
those of us who are wrestling with theology, like theology proper, who is this God? And we filtered that through the voices that you mm -hmm. just mentioned. Mm -hmm. There is multiple responses, one of them being in some ways to shame the person who's who's given us those messages. Like, how dare you teach these kinds of things? I'm kind of curious mm -hmm. and I, I don't want to be dismissive and I don't want to be disrespectful to people who really have been damaged by these particular messages. Mm -hmm. But there's a part of me that also feels like a healthy way forward, which is part of the reason we're called VIA. It's like we're trying to figure out a way forward is to recognize those particular histories. I mean, does mm -hmm. that invoke within you any sense of compassion for these folks? But then second question, um, I know I'm multi-layered questions tonight. Great. Um, Love it. What is then the responsibility for those who have been called or commissioned for pulpit ministry, mm -hmm. for preaching and teaching and these different types of things to interrogate their own attachment history, their trauma history before they even theologize? And then mm -hmm. I've got a third question, which I'll wait. I don't want to layer it too many, too many things there. So um, okay. let's start with that, that right there. Compa do, yeah. you, do you have compassion? And what is the responsibility for those who take on any particular leadership of ministry specifically in a teaching and theological position yeah um it yeah it does give me compassion um and and it's you know it really makes me uh you know you you have to hold both of those things i i, I hold both the compassion for that person and and also acknowledging the harm that they did um and, and i feel like personally as a christian that is Kind of the world that i live in um is we're part like we see all these oppressive systems everywhere um and for me i i have to believe that uh the people that are spearheading those are trapped in some way in that oppressive system that's mm -hmm. a whole other conversation but right. i think that there is room for for compassion um and i do think uh for people in ministry um yeah we need to do our own work. I was in ministry for a while, so I'm going to include myself. Um, yeah. But, you know, I think about us as therapists, we, we generally are required to do our own work. Um, mm. And I think that uh, people in ministry should do the same. Uh, I'm reminded of Chuck DeGroat's book called When Narcissism Comes to Church. Mm. And um, what he did was he actually, he's a therapist and he did psychological assessments for um, a church planting organization. So he was doing these psych assessments for people that wanted to go plant their own church. And he said that the narcissism levels were much higher than in the general population. Um, and oh man, don't, I, don't scare us like that, Crispin. Come on. <laughs> this is. <laughs> and um, I mean, fortunately, uh, what he did was he, you know, he says that narcissism comes from a place of shame. It comes from trauma yeah. that we yeah. haven't dealt with. Um, and so, you know, his invitation to those people into the church is do your work, you know. Um, but, yeah, you know, a lot of the time we end up uh, displacing uh, the stuff that we should be working out into the people that we minister to. I think there's another, yeah. I just want to add on another please, piece. Please. Um, as we, you know, think about what is the responsibility of, of church leaders to be aware of attachment styles. Um, I think it's really important for church leaders to know about these attachment styles for the people that they're ministering to yeah. as well. Yes. Um, because I, I, gen I, my rule of thumb is, um, you know, choose your words based on the idea that someone who has been through significant trauma or, you know, is experiencing mental, like a mental illness, like, um, you know, significant depression or whatever it is, is there. So, um, you know, I, I've been at my fair uh, share of churches where the pastor like, you think you're good, but I'm going to tell you how much worse you are than you actually think. Right, right. And as the therapist sitting there in the room, I mean, I wasn't a therapist when I was going to those churches, but you're just like, I know that there are people that hate themselves here. So I think we should privilege their experience. Hmm. Like maybe there are some people here that need to be taken down a few notches. Um, I had a pastor friend who once said, maybe it's 
it's us pastors that need to be taken down a couple of notches. We need to hear that message. Um, but that person with, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the shame filled attachment style. They need to know that God loves them. They do not need to hear you are disgusting. You are unlovable. That is not healing. That is not helpful. And so I think we need to privilege those folks. And I think, um, that people in ministry need to take that trauma informed approach to say, all right, like how is how are these words going to land with everyone in this room, and how are they going to land with the person who is suffering most? Yeah. Do you know if Chuck DeGroat um, talks a little bit about just the mere form and function of church ministry as being in many ways attractive to those of us who suffer from more difficult attachment styles? Because the the idea that I get to stand in front of people and say things of which I get accolades or get pats mm-hmm. on the back, or I become a minor Christian celebrity or right kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Is there any, uh, it, that's just fascinating. And I've read other studies that have correlated with this, that there's something mm-hmm. about, I mean, we're social beings and to find mm-hmm. the approval of other social animals, other humans, when we're in a position of power in ministry, I can see being an, an extremely attractive avenue for those who have trauma or difficulty and challenge. Um, and, and what a what a tremendously complicated and painful cycle that is, because then we then we continue to perpetuate these um, traumatic cycles in people, right? And, and broken attachments. Yeah, yeah. And you think about it, and it it does seem like a good way to get needs met um, in a sense of like, we all have need for being liked, uh, for people to like us, to want to be around us, um, to see us. And unfortunately, um, I think the thing that if that's what draws someone into ministry, that is the last thing that they end up getting because it's, it's not news to anyone that, um, given the, uh, you know, very commonly pastors end up really isolated, right? They, they don't have peers. Um, everybody is looking to them to be the spiritual leader. And so you end up seen and you end up with people liking you, but you find that there's no place to be vulnerable. And it really going back to the Brene Brown stuff that y'all probably know, right? In order to actually feel accepted and loved, we have to be able to be vulnerable and then accepted within that. Right. And so it's it's really heartbreaking to think about folks that are that are seeking that love and acceptance and connection that we are, you know, that's a part of who we are as human. And I think that so often they end up in a much more isolated place. Yeah. I say that as a therapist because uh, therapists can also do the same. You know, it really takes intentionality as a therapist to be like, all right, who are who are the people that I'm vulnerable with? Everybody talks to me about their problems, um, but who who can I be messy and show up with and, right. and get you know their closeness and right. acceptance? Friends, if you're watching, um, I'm going to take the questions from Slido. So please uh, submit those and upvote and we'll um, allow you guys to participate in the conversation, uh, asking Crispin any questions that you have. I have two more questions uh, that uh, I have planned at least to follow up. Um, so, the, so the first question, well, the third question of the previous set of questions that I wanted to ask, I am sure that when it comes to attachment science, you're not getting much criticism from psychologists, but as soon as you apply attachment science to theology, you're getting a lot of criticism from theologians and Christians and evangelicals and fundamentalists and people who are saying, why do my feelings matter? It's true. Mm-hmm. So my, my question for you is there are that I, I don't think that's going away anytime soon. That is going to be a cultural reality for this religious expression in Christianity. And part of the reason that is the case is because there are those passages, Crispin, in the Mm -hmm. Bible that Mm -hmm. say things about God's anger, God's Mm -hmm. wrath, condemnation, hatred of sin. And so my Mm -hmm. question is, um, how do you respond to that? What is your kind of theological Mm -hmm. navigation of attachment Mm -hmm. science? But also with the fact that there are those passages now that obviously we can get interpretation, but what's your, I'm sure you've gotten criticism on all, all that kind of stuff. 
Yeah. Um, I, I'm a big fan of Brad Jerzak's work. Um, and so, and he talks a lot about, um, unwrathing God. Um, and so I've been really encouraged by that, which actually was, um, it was a few years ago, not that long ago, maybe five or six years ago that I went through some significant transformation of understanding like God isn't mad at me all the time. Um, and God isn't just waiting to like throw me away. Um, but those passages are there. Um, and it, it, it is tricky to know what to do with them. Um, one thing that I like about Brad Jerzak's work is he has looked at a lot of the early church fathers. Um, and they, the, you know, early Christianity said, yeah, we see these passages about anger. Um, we, but we know that God is beyond us. God is, is, um, is not human like we are. And God is consistently, you know, looking at us with compassion and love. Mm. And those ways that we experience God's wrath are what happens when we turn away from love. And, uh, that's really clear to see, right? When we, when we go away from the wisdom that God gives us, um, for example, thinking about, uh, you know, the Hebrew law being so much around uh, caring for the marginalized. What happens when the marginalized are not cared for? We see, we see, you know, God's wrath. We see pain. We see suffering. We see, you know, gnashing of teeth. Um, and so that's a lot of how I make sense of it. Um, I, I love, uh, first John four eighteen, where, you know, so he just says God is love. And then he says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. I know I'm like cherry picking a verse there, but, uh, but don't worry. You're in good company. You're in very yeah, good company. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I, scripture has so many different things, but if I look at that as the basis of interpreting these other things that it clearly says God is angry. Um, but if I can understand that there's no punishment in love, um, and God is love, that gives me a really good, um, starting place. And, um, I've been really encouraged to, to learn more about where we see this show up throughout scripture. There tends to be, um, you know, views of like, um, not very helpful views about, you know, Old Testament God of wrath, New Testament God of love. Um, but there are passages, I talk about this in my book, but um, Isaiah 19, where God basically is like, I'm going to decimate Egypt. Like they're like, uh, it says everyone will be terrified because of what the Lord Almighty is planning against them. And then by the end of the chapter, God says, Egypt will be considered a blessing to the earth alongside Israel and Assyria. God declares, blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Maybe and God's so suffering we, from disassociative identity disorder. So, right. I, know, I mean, we, we see these themes throughout scripture where God is like, I'm going to totally destroy them. And then, then they're fine in the end. And um, if you're a parent, you know that feeling right. of like, <laughs> I am so frustrated with you. Um but you know what? We're, we're fine. We're good. Um, and, and I think that, you know, is the way that it goes. Like, I believe that God is always for our good, for our well-being and not like me. I mean, me personally, but all of us. Right. It's not yeah. like God is on my side. It's like God is is love and wants us to be well. And so um, there are, you know, there are these passages about anger and wrath and destruction um, but I end up going back to the consistent theme that I see, which yeah. is God is always there. Um, yeah. There's another um, uh, theme that we see where God is always threatening to not threatening, but um, there are all these reasons God could disown Israel, right? In, in their covenant, um, the, Israel breaks the covenant so many times over and, and God never leaves. And so I think we can see that. Yeah, God might be frustrated, but God. Well, in many ways, up. that's a theological expression of the rupture repair relationship, too. Mm -hmm. Right. And so mm -hmm. the, the, the very thing that you talked about in your newsletter is is manifesting itself in, in a theological narrative of mm -hmm. uh, the people. Um, right. Oh, my goodness. We got some amazing questions. By the way, I just wanted to state 
that cherry picking is not what I think you're doing. I think what you are doing is what Jesus taught is that there's a priority of command, that there's a lens through which we view the rest of the entirety of the scriptures and to love God and to love your neighbor is the most important and to choose love as the lens through which we interpret everything else is mm -hmm. the way of Jesus. So I think um, all that to just justify everything. That yeah, you, you I mean, not since thinking. you mentioned it, let, uh, I just want to also mention Luke 4, where Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, but leaves out the day of, of judgment part. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? So, <laughs> Okay, we, we've got some really fantastic questions. Debbie asks, um, this is one that was I wanted to ask, but Debbie, thank you for asking it. Is there a limit to how attachment science applies to how humans can relate to a Christian God who is often not represented in human form? This gets into the question of anthropomorphizing and corporeality mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. attachment is corporeal. We feel it mm -hmm. in our bodies. There is no physical form of God. So what say you? Yeah, um, that is, that's a, that's a great question. That's what attachment researchers are, are asking all the time. Um, but so much of attachment, um, even in our uh, everyday relationships happens in our brain, right? If, if someone was like videotaping what you and your partner were going through every day, let's say, like there's so much interpretation that's going on in your mind. Um, and we do the same with God. And so there's so much of our relationship with God that sort of lives in our imagination. I don't mean like unreal, like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, yeah. um, but in the mind, there are limitations because we can't, um, we can't go to God for a hug. Uh, we can't read body language. There are all these ways that, um, that we have this attachment style or like um, that we develop our attachment styles and strategies with the people in our lives based on the nonverbals they give us. And we don't get that from God. This is what uh, I think it has been really important about in scripture. God gives, gives his people or God gives God's people um, these concrete things to hold on to because you know, otherwise it's just God in our mind. And so I think about uh, the Last Supper. Um, mm. I think about uh, the some of the memorials in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, and coming from an evangelical background, um, I think I understand that we sort of got rid of some of those like rituals uh, because they felt like dead traditions and we wanted things to be more like kind of present. But I think uh, one of the downsides to that has been that then you have to decide in your head, like, you know, do I feel close to God? Are we good? Like, are things okay? Um, whereas, um, like, I went to a Mennonite congregation for three years, and it's like, yeah, you go and you, you know, do this tradition together, and it's a reminder that God is close. Mm -hmm. It's not, uh, you know, the worship service where it's like, God, come close. Like, do I feel you? Are we okay? You know? Um, we have these concrete reminders that that help build that secure attachment. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic. Um, Alicia asks, I've heard um, approximately 50% of people have a secure attachment style. Is this something that can apply to all their relationships? How many styles can one person exhibit? I think you touched on this a little bit. Yeah, you can, you can use a lot, but generally you tend to use one. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and it really is, uh, we talked about this idea of an internal working model. So, you know, there's variations within that, but generally, um, by the time you're an adult, it's, you're not responding to the world so much. It's more like, this is the strategy that I've, uh, or style that I've developed and have, and I'm responding to the world through that. Uh, whereas like, you know, an infant is much more like I'm responding because these are the, this is the information I'm getting from the world. We are going to ask our last question. I'm looking, um, man, there's some good questions. This is getting, okay. I'm going to save this last question for later for the last one. So let's, let's bring this one up from Alex. How can you change your attachment strategies with God? when it seems like God is non-responsive, at least in a non-audible, tangible way. Practices, tips. Yeah. So there are, in, in psychology, we know some of the ways that help change our attachments. 
And so there are, I've, I've uh, a few in my book, um, but a lot of it is sp through spiritual practices. And a lot of these spiritual practices, um, again, have not necessarily been used in, if you grew up in the evangelical church, um, but spiritual directors um, in mm, say yeah. Catholic churches have been using for a long time. And it's really interesting because emotionally focused therapy and internal family systems therapy is using some of these same ways of, of um, using the imagination of checking in with a body of creating space to to investigate and explore like what's going on internally um they're finding that those things really help change people's mm -hmm. attachment styles and heal their attachment styles um and to know that there have been people that have been facilitating that with god for centuries mm. um i'd like to close with a question this is going to be our group therapy time and there was one question um anonymous that i will uh, throw up as as very very much uh commensurate with this question we went through a book club went through your book um incredibly helpful uh, had a wonderful time wonderful conversations one friend said to me that she very much appreciates your thesis, your ideas, and is in agreement 100%, fully in. This is revolutionary. But the feeling of shame, anxiety, or distance is still there, even though she has found a new community of which we can explore these ideas, that there's mm -hmm. been a shift in theology, there's right all of these things. But mm -hmm. the feeling is still there. And mm -hmm. I have a feeling that that feeling <laughs> continues even after we've read your book, even after we've gone through the mm -hmm. therapy, even after our ideas have changed. And here's the question from Anonymous. Some of us are stuck in our attachment strategies. Is there hope? What first steps should people take when they want to turn and repair and find new strategies? So Crispin, if you would be so kind as to share with all of us um, what word would you give us for those of us who are looking for hope? And hope, in my definition, is not optimism, but it's a disciplined mm -hmm. application of our beliefs, of our philosophies. Mm -hmm. What hope would we have here? Because I'm in. I bought the book. <laughs> we did the book club. Uh -huh. I, I'm, ready, I'm ready to shift my strategies, but the feeling is still there, and some mm -hmm. of us are still, still stuck. So mm -hmm. let's close on that and... Maybe you can help yeah. bring some life and compassion and hope to us all. Well, it's it's funny, you, you know, you asked for a word. I'm going to give just one word, which is anger, and uh -oh. which surprised me as I was reflecting on it. So um, some of us have been so hurt by Christianity, by, by religion, by spirituality, um, by all of it. Um, you know, I, I think it's okay to say we've been hurt by God because um, I don't want to play that card of like, well, you just didn't really understand God. Mm. Um, I think it is so okay to be really angry about that, um, which then helps us get in touch with the hurt that is under that um, because in until we can make space for that, um, that's going to be there. And um, I bringing it back to the, the attachment stuff. Um, what they found with infants is like when, when their parent was not reliable, when their parent wasn't there, uh, the infants would get mad and they would just be like, what, you know, I'm so mm -hmm. mad. I need you. I'm so mad that you left me. I'm so mad at you. And there's something that part of the repair process that happens with that. And so I would say that is the first step is to, tell God about how angry you are or don't tell God. Um, I went through a phase in my life of like, God, I'm, I'm just tired of you being disappointed in me all the time. So you're going to have to earn my trust back. Wow. Um, mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm not throwing in the towel yet, but I am not going to, I have been working my whole life to get close to you, to do it right. To like, I, I was that kid. I was that teenager um, that would like listen to my Hillsongs CD like every night and like be on me, my knees, like trying to hear a word from God. Mm. And I am like, I am exhausted and I'm done with that. If you want a relationship with me, then you're going to have to show up. Mm. Um, and I think that there's, uh, you know, 
precedent and scripture for that. But I also think that uh, what we see when there's been significant rupture, we call that attachment injury, mm-hmm. um, that there needs to be a lot of room for anger and sadness and grief and um, and then to open up a place where God might meet you there. And for some of us, it's like, it's like I have to say goodbye to the God that I grew up with. And um, I'm only going to say hello to a God that looks entirely different. And I, wow. I think that God can handle that. Um, and I guess one last thing I'll add, I'll just point you to another book. Um, <laughs> we, love Pod- we love it. <laughs> Padre Gotuma's book in the shelter was transformative for me because he really in that book for me modeled what it looks like to blame God, to be mad at God, to say like, you know, like it's not my responsibility to make this work. Um, I'm going to show up, but I'm going to be my authentic self and, um, and I'm going to wait for you to show up too. And there it is friends. Our therapist has given us permission to be angry, told us that it is actually healthy to be angry and expressive, which is what is in the basement, right? Mm-hmm. Anger comes out of that place of, of hurt and disconnection. Mm-hmm. It reminds yeah. me very much, I, I tell me if I'm off, but it reminds me very much, I don't know if you saw the movie Inside Out, the Disney Pixar, but mm-hmm. you know, joy, joy, let's just be happy and joyful all the time. <laughs> and it's only when sadness uh, gets to take control uh, and, and express itself. Uh, is there that that connection? So it reminds me very much of that. Um, so let's get angry. Let's get in the basement. Let's be authentic and share with one another and stuff. But I love that because that that's the pathway, like sharing what is truly authentically ourselves. And we can do that with each other. And you heard it here. You can do it with God. And I would 100% agree with you that not only do we have precedent, but we have exhortation and example and encouragement from the psalmists and the prophets to do the same as well as from Mm -hmm. jesus everybody attached to god by crispin mayfield um thank you everybody for uh participating and asking all of your questions that was absolutely fantastic crispin our prayer is that your tribe would simply increase and we hope that your continual influence grows because this is amazing and incredible stuff how you've taken this profound psychological insight and applied it to theology and church and and it just makes lord willing makes all relationships better thank you so much for being here um we're so incredibly grateful for you taking the time for thank you so much thanks i just really appreciate it love your engagement and uh just honored to be a part of your community awesome have a good night everybody and we will see you next time